0: Play it now with Game Pass.
1: What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother.
0: Wesley, hello.
1: Today we are discussing Uncut Uncut Gems. Gems. Were you the one that told me that Adam Sandler said that if he didn't get an Academy Award nomination for his performance in Uncut Gems, that he was going to return to comedy to haunt us all?
0: Not quite. I haven't seen the video of this. It might have been on a talk show or whatever, so I don't know how serious he was. He's Adam Sandler. What he said was, if I don't get an, um, an Oscar nomination and a win, I'm going to deliberately make a shitty movie.
1: Well, didn't he already take care of that with all of his other films?
0: Maybe, but that dude makes a fortune. He just re-upped his Netflix deal for like three more movies. As to whether those are comedies or dramas, I don't know.
1: Did you watch The Cruise Ship Who It? No.
0: Why would I watch The Cruise Ship Who It? Was that Jennifer Aniston? Yep. I'm sure I'll get to that next.
1: Brian made me watch it and of course loved it because he loved it one? Yes.
0: Couples therapy, retreat, couple's danger?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I think it was called Who Done It or something really generic. Oh. Like <laughs> Want me to look it up?
0: No, I I, do, I know what you're talking about. All right. Well, yeah, anyway. it was something like that.
1: He he enjoyed it was like called Cruise Ship of Terror. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but Brian thoroughly enjoyed it. As I sat back and rolled my eyes and did my usual peanut gallery stuff, peanut gallery. What does that mean?
0: It's the place. It's the cheap seats where they sit up in the back and like eat peanuts and like throw shells and yell stuff.
1: Got it. You know everything. That's why I want to do a podcast with you. Yeah, I'm old. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anyway, I rewatched Uncut Gems. As did I. Really? Mhm. Do you typically rewatch them?
0: If at all possible. Generally, it. I need a platform where I can stream it anywhere I am?
1: Yeah, I wanted to brush up on the first 15 minutes because I remember the Ethiopian scene being pretty big. I mean, actually, Edmund Pond and upon Second Viewing realized it wasn't big at all, but wondering if there was more meaning to it than I had, um, I had gleaned from the first time around. I, and I really didn't think that there was. So Uncut Gems. I immediately thought that Dad was going to love this movie on the sole merit that it includes basketball. Did he not? No. This wasn't Dad's cup of tea. I thought for sure he would like it because of the basketball thing. Mm-hmm. But he said it was too New York and too, um, I don't know, too frenetic. But then I realized upon rewatching it that it doesn't have subtitles.
0: Really? Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. When it comes out on Netflix, which is an inevitability at this point, it was actually announced of when it would uh, show up on Netflix, it will. And you might have a separate, a different take.
1: Maybe so, yeah. He can actually understand what's going on. Because this movie is very frenetic. I think they, crank, they ratchet up the tension and they keep it high throughout. And if you're not following the dialogue, then I think it'd be really hard to track.
0: There were bursts of violence in this movie, for sure, but... For a high, high fat, fast-paced, frenetic movie, as you called it, they, they only kind of talk at each other. For a, you know, There are confrontations, yeah. but really it's just a tension in, in what could happen.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not uh, confrontation-averse, but for some reason I don't do well with yelling. And th- this whole movie, everyone's just yelling at each other the entire time. Like Adam Sandler is... <laughs> <laughs> But is that just
0: him? That's kind of his shtick, though. His, his talking voice is kind of meek. You know, it's like low voice. And then I gets slow yelly, And he gets really, really loud. But I don't know, that's kind of his thing.
1: Well, but it wasn't only him in this. I mean, Adina Menzel has a very um, reserved, uh, what do we call it? Um, Adel Tazim. <laughs> Did you ever Travolta-, Travolta rise your name?
0: No. How do you do it?
1: Well, it's, there's a name generator where you can go and. Oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: I did, but I know it's so weirdly off from your name that I have no recollection of what it was. Yeah. Although one time I had a badge printed for a job that I was on, and it was Welsey Welsh, Echistema, Welsh, Welsh, and there was like an M in there for some reason. That was awesome. Wellsy? Wells Yeah.
1: <laughs> I bet you had to like look at that and like f- phonetically look at every syllable to right? pronounce it. Right. Yeah. And, and
0: then memorize it to tell ten years later. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I but yeah the the name generator was worse than the um better than the uh, Star Warsify your name. Yeah. But um, I was saying Adina, She was very um, ah, what's the word? You know when they're like held back. Reserved? No, re- Yeah, but like it was restrained. restrained. She had a rest- very restrained performance. So I was waiting for her to like bust up and be like...
0: Please don't burst into song.
1: <sighs> well, you were kind of channeling your Maui right there. What is
0: this? Marriage story? What?
1: You know how Moana, he's like, if you start singing right now, I'm oh. going to throw up.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't be the first time I've been compared to Maui.
1: <sighs> does take a lot of effort to keep that hair silky, I imagine. Uh, I liked her performance, but she is like so beside the point of this discussion. Yep. So I don't know where to begin. I watched again last night, and I intended to watch the first fifteen minutes, like I said, to understand if the opening with the, in Ethiopia, the Ethiopian mining black Jews, uh, had some more significance than perhaps I gleaned the first time around. And um, I don't, I didn't think that it did. But then I found myself two and two plus hours later still watching that film
0: yeah the a good a good place to begin is at the beginning. and in the case of the Ethiopia opening, which reminded me of the Exorcist opening, wow, where he's in you know he meets the Pazuzu statue or whatever, this is not a spoiler because it's literally the first five minutes of the movie. Um, you wonder what bearing it has on the rest of the movie. They, because they don't outright explain it in that movie, it feels awfully tangential. So this movie started off in a weird way. as I understand it, this that opening scene was a mandate from the studio. It did, didn't it originally opened in the jewelry shop. And then they said, we want to go to Ethiopia. So the Safdie brothers who I've been researching lately, they seem very aware of what it takes to get a movie made. They'll roll with it. They work very hard and seem to be, seem amenable to the idea of, okay, this is, we understand that there are certain things you have to do in order to get a movie made. One of which is listen to the people who are putting up the money. So let's do it. As long as we're going to do it, let's try to tie it as closely to the theme of the movie as we possibly can. They found the harmony in the sort of black Jew thing. Uh, At the time, they had another NBA player in mind for the role. This This screenplay is 10 years in the making, 160 drafts, as I understand it. So at the time, they had an African NBA star was going to star, and it was somehow fitting that this amazing magical gem would come from Africa and land in the hands of Adam Sandler's character. And then it kind of mirrored the journey of the NBA star. Things change, some things don't change. That opening made it into the movie and we ended up with Kevin Garnett instead.
1: Got it. Well, Garnett is a connection, maybe. Yes. Since it's a stone. Fortuitous. Um, Interesting. So as an, an African NBA player, as in from Africa. Yes. And um, that would uh, help explain why perhaps he had some kind of mesmeric connection with the
0: stone? Oddly enough, that might have tracked in a weird way, I'm not sure. Maybe it would have been effective. The idea I got is that if they were forced to do do something, they would just sort of make it work. Uh, It is worth noting that Kobe Bryant was once considered for this role. Really? Executives, knowing that Kobe wanted to act, very much pushed for him to have that happen, so one of the Safety brothers rewrote the entire script at great uh, expense of time to accommodate it to Kobe. This is what I admired about it. They were like, "Well, it's you can't just plug anybody in." He took the time to rewrite the entire script to fit a Kobe character. Why would he be in New York? You know, uh, to to be on 47th Street shopping for jewelry if he plays for the Lakers. What kind of person is he and how would that change things? But I think the theme would have stood in that Kobe would have been mesmerized by this opal. Right. It's kind of a funny premise where if you look, an NBA player falls in love with a magical gem and it wreaks havoc on Adam Sandler's life, you know, maybe not the best, strongest pitch.
1: No, I don't know that that would be the elevator pitch. What did you think about going from the opal into Adam Sandler's colon?
0: Like I said, some things work and some things don't. And I can see how that was a thing. We were obviously intended to get lost in the opal, right, in the shifting colors. I I once tried to come up with an analogy or for some way to expound on this, It was something along the lines of Adam Sandler literally can't tell a good thing from his asshole or something like that. It didn't hold up.
1: (laughs) So you were looking for some symbolic meaning there too.
0: Yeah, it was, I don't know. That starts on a tangent of the, the issues that I did, some of the issues I did have with the movie.
1: Issues? Yeah, no, I got plenty. One, the music.
0: The music. Um... They the Safety brothers acknowledged that this is this movie is intended to keep you uh, jangled, keep your nerves on edge, uh, ratchet up the tension and sustain it for as long as humanly possible. If that was the intention for the music, I think it worked, but it wasn't. It made it less pleasant. Do you agree?
1: Well, if if it made it less pleasant, I do think it was kind of achieving its goal, but the but the cho the music choice was what. Stood out to me this '80s synth thing that was just droning and constant. It was it, it it was pretty grating
0: from the outset. I was like, "What is this?" And then watching it again, I thought I might have missed something. Just as annoying the second time around. Now, was there a method, or did they just kind of slap it on? No, at the appropriate moments there were swells, there were, but it was it was just like this weird dissonant um, cacophony of of noise junk. Yeah. electronic synth junk and but it, it came in at all the appropriate moments when the tension was heightened
1: or maybe to add additional chaos to the the dialogue volley
0: maybe it was del- all the choices in where the music was implemented were deliberate the music just sucked
1: yeah <clears throat> I think it was intended to make us stressed out a little bit but it wasn't necessarily the choice itself was just so kind of um, distracting
0: stands out right away right, right. And, and sustains your kind of ire for it all the way through. So the music leads me to larger themes of the movie as to maybe plausibility or how well it works. Um, I wonder if Howard was meant to be rounded and a whole character. Certainly he was surrounded by family. We were never given explicit reasons for why he and his wife were having problems, although it seemed fairly obvious because the problems that they had just contained within the story and the script were probably enough that would have driven any wife away. But there, there were a lot of things that were kind of left up to our interpretation. But Howard as a character still felt kind of one note to me. He was certainly focused on a handful of things. He was focused on getting that gem, and then he was focused on the debts, but that was sort of tangentially related to how he was going to get the money to pay off those debts. If he couldn't pay off his debts in part, he was going to use those parts to gamble to get the debt. So he was focusing on his next score, the next score.
1: That's interesting because I don't think he was necessarily a focused character. I think he was an addicted character who had gambling problems and the debt and paying off the debt and the trade-offs. and the placing of bets, all that was just a function of his addiction. Now, his treatment with the stone was kind of a different matter. That seemed like, you know, what did Gollum do before he became a Gollum? He was a hobbit. That kind of seemed like his hobbit moment. Like he was a hobbit when he was handling the gem because that was something that he was genuinely interested in as a whole person. Like he was a gemologist, he was a jewelry guy. And all the other stuff was his, his downfall, his addiction.
0: I just got the sense that his focus on the gem was to the exclusion of all else. And so when he was digging into the fish and all he cared about was the gem and his reliable worker who had been with him for a decade or whatever said, I can't take this anymore, was trying to address a real problem. And all he cared about was the gem and forcing that dude out. I felt like that was kind of his thing. He saw the... um, the, the guys looking for their money sitting in the back of his daughter's performance, couldn't focus on the performance, got out, pulled him outside, got into a bunch of trouble, ended up naked in the trunk, and then, when it was all over and he didn't have any more distractions, he could focus on his daughter's play.
1: He just focuses a kind of his weird diction.
0: Yeah, not in a good way. I think that he was hyper-focused because he was obsessed. Maybe his obsessions yes. is a better way to put it, Yeah, um, which of course made me question the larger question of whether or not we're supposed to like the Howard character. I felt like Adam Sandler can be annoying, but was likable in this movie. In just watching him on the screen, I liked watching him and what he was doing. But I don't think in any way we were meant to sympathize with this character. I will agree. He was definitely addicted to gambling and and it showed all the negative impacts that that had on his life. But... If he was addicted and it was a sickness, an illness, he as a person may not have been accountable for some of his actions, right? It's what we're supposed to think in a modern day and age.
1: Love the addict, hate the addiction.
0: Right, but when people go through recovery in 12 steps and they atone for who they were and largely who they were in the eyes of other people is orchestrated by their addiction. It was the booze that made me do those things. And for that, I apologize. It wasn't me, I'm a different person. Maybe it, uh, that's not correct. Maybe it was them, but they were. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood of our We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become?
1: Senwa Saga.
0: Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Had a monkey on their back that they couldn't get rid of.
1: Right. Well, he's pretty far from that. Any kind of recovery.
0: Yeah, redemption. Yeah. I will say that... I liked watching Adam Sandler in this movie. He didn't grate on me. A lot of people, like you said, said he was just one note. He just kind of yells the whole time, and he's kind of Adam Sandler. He's a character right. of Adam Sandler the whole time. I didn't feel that way. He did a good job. He was overlooked entirely for a nomination for for best actor.
1: You thought he was overlooked?
0: I thought he. He was overlooked by the Academy, but I think in, in terms of acting ability, he was fine. I don't know how much range he demonstrated. The question I'm getting at is whether or not Howard is a likable character. Because I have to say that when it came down to it, there was no other way. For this, for this story to wrap up for Howard, right? There was no way out. There was no happy ending. Anytime he got any kind of a windfall, anytime he was just about to get himself out of trouble, he was just headed for another gamble. It's the kind of person he was. And for the character, I didn't have a lot of sympathy. It was an inevitability that he would run into trouble he ultimately couldn't get himself out of. But maybe that's not the correct position to take for someone who's addicted, you know? Are we supposed to feel the sympathy? Look how this poor man is being driven by his addiction against his will, and how it ruined how it ruined his life, as opposed to him ruining his own life. Mm-hmm. I felt that Howard was unredeemable, even though he wasn't overtly evil. He just he wasn't going to get better, and if you can't get better, it, it's you know it's a ter- it's a terrible waste. But it was an inevitability, I think.
1: Yeah, I went I went along for the ride and hoped that maybe this win would be the win that would satisfy that that itch that he's been trying to scratch and I think I did like him or I was rooting for him because I was rooting for him to win, like I wanted the bet to pay off. I never wanted William H. Macy's character in Fario to succeed.
0: Yeah, um, as much as you liked him, as much as he was cute and funny and I still quote him to this day, he was kind of doomed from the beginning. But also he set out to have his wife kidnapped from the very beginning. Also not a spoiler because that happens very early on. (laughs)
1: I don't think you have to worry about spoilers. Okay.
0: If you haven't seen Fargo, you suck.
1: But I but he was such a despicable character that I was okay with not liking him. William H. Macy's character.
0: Yeah. So it was easy to not like him because of what he was doing, but also a person that I don't think was evil. No. He was trying to get himself out of a situation and got in way over his head as a result, dealing with things and people that he had no handle on whatsoever. No
1: reason, no no place in dealing with.
0: It's a good comparison for the, for the Howard character in this movie. Um, I remember thinking, especially the second time around, that when he's got them in his security door and he's watching the game, he's so elated and we're caught up like, please make that shot, get that rebound, you put that shot in. And then after it was done, he was so confident that they were on the same page that he was. Mm-hmm. That how could everything not be okay? It just it all fell in, into into line the way it was supposed to. And when he opened that door, he was supremely confident that there would be relief and high fives, and everybody would get their money, which is really what they came for, and go on their separate ways. Right? right? He was it's, so
1: certain
0: of it. Yeah, it was sort of it, it was like a sports mentality where you lose your you lose your mind and start jumping around and, and getting naked and painting your body and going to games and stuff that I never really understood. But you get really caught up and it feels like the most important thing in the world. Right. It's just kind of his mindset across the board. How could it go so badly when he's so talented at what he does? When he made this hustle and paid one-tenth of the value of what this gem was supposed to be. Uh, He he just knew that KG was gonna have an amazing game and it would get him out of trouble and he did and he was right. How could it go so wrong so consistently? It's because the other people outside of his narrow scope of vision didn't share that vision and what he was thinking was the most important thing in the world wasn't. He was good at what he was doing but he was so hyper-focused he never saw the bigger picture.
1: He never saw the bullet coming for his head?
0: I don't think anybody did. Kelly, who sat through that whole movie in a state of agitation, still went...
1: <gasps> Me when too. he got
0: shot in the head. I did. Like an audible gasp. Um, I can't say I was surprised, but I don't think uh, Howard saw that coming at all.
1: But you didn't say, whoa, like you weren't surprised at all?
0: Nope. B- I...
1: You didn't see it coming, but you weren't surprised. Mm,
0: I didn't see it coming and I blinked for sure because it was the way that it was handled and filmed was so it was from behind and it was so we weren't appropriately set up visually in order to receive that shot. So when it happened, you almost didn't see it. It's over the dude's shoulder and and somewhat obscured, but you hear the noise and it takes you a second to understand like, no, he didn't really just shoot him in the face. Right. Until he's on the floor and blood is pouring out of his head. Right. And then it got really real, really quickly. Uh, if he weren't in the grip of his gambling addiction, he might have been able to get out of the situation yeah. that he was in.
1: Well, that's the thing with it, with addiction and obsession. I mean, you can always start your journey or whatever of recovery at that time, but he, he was so caught in the grips of it, it was so automatic for him. He was talking to Kevin Garnett about the gem and like literally talked himself into taking that $175,000 and placing a bet on
0: it. Yep, I got the impression that Howard was really good at what he did Yeah. across the board. It's a shame that he was in fact so good at what he did and so accurate in his assessment of how Kevin Garnett was gonna perform at the game that he might have been more hesitant to make the bet if he didn't somehow glean or know that it was a sure thing. For the, the second time around, he actually Pumped him up on purpose. They don't think you're going to score 18 points. They think New York is going to win. Like, what's up with that? Got him fired up so he could place that last fateful bet.
1: So what you're saying is that he he had an influence over um, the outcome of his bet.
0: I'm saying he was good at what he did, and if he hadn't have been so good at what he did as at a betting, gambler, yeah, at, at gambling, then he might have been better off. He might have he might not have put it all on this one bet.
1: I can concede the idea that people, are, that people understand gambling, and I would love to have understood the, the details of his parlay, three-way parlay bet or whatever. But um, I don't know that anyone is, is really good at it.
0: Let's say that you are a drug addict. Scott Weiland, Stone Temple Pilots, said that he couldn't take his anti meds. Um, because he needed, they they dulled and numbed him, and he needed his highs and lows, his peaks and valleys, to feel the emotions he needed to be a good songwriter. Let's say that what you're doing in artistic bursts, you can only do because of mind-altering substances or your vice. It kind of feeds your talent. That's kind of strong for what I think Howard was going through, but I think that he was a good jeweler. He was able to take the rock that was worth nothing and orchestrate that sale across continents to be able to get something that was gonna go up in one of the largest auction houses in the world. And likewise, he could take a bet. He knew the ins and outs of gambling and the performance that Kevin Garnett was gonna put up. And he knew enough about how he could milk the most out of it—that he put an absurd bet that the book he said was the dumbest bet he ever saw—and he said, "I disagree. I disagree," because he knew exactly what he was doing. If he wasn't so good at that, he might have—he might not have gotten himself in such trouble.
1: I think you give him a lot more credit than he deserves.
0: But maybe I just liked him. Did you see how white his teeth were?
1: Well, they were obviously veneers or or caps or something. Yeah,
0: they were fake teeth. That I understand. Well,
1: the, of course they were. They weren't Adam Sandler's teeth, but I think they were intended to be, uh, I think Howard's teeth were intended to be like capped or veneered.
0: Yeah, like jewels in the rough. He's pretty craggy. And then he had these blinding white teeth.
1: (laughs) These blinding white teeth that were always kind of dry and his lips kind of hung on them. Yeah.
0: So let's get into the acting then. Adam Sandler um, has been in a number of dramas. I think he's done six or seven, he said, throughout his 30-year career. I've seen a bunch, Punch Drunk, Punch Drunk Love, I really liked. Um, or Me was a little bit more, more, more of a downer, but he's played these roles before, and I think he's capable at what he does. I don't think it requires too much of a stretch, but I can get past the oh, it's Adam Sandler being sad kind of thing. He's convincing. He was in this role for me. What did you think?
1: I thought he was totally convincing in this role. New York Jew. I mean, isn't that kind of his profile? Stop it. Um, I can't say that,
0: sure, I don't know.
1: I mean Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, I thought did pretty well well in his dramatic turn in the spy and I, and I and it's funny because they have to go to great lengths to say this is not a comedy when you have actors like Sasha Baron Cohen or Adam Sandler in dramatic roles, but um, I didn't I didn't feel like I mean it's like uh, what's his face? Steve Carell, like all he does is dramatic roles now. I don't expect. Adam Sandler to stay in his lane
0: no he doesn't have to because he can he can do compelling things it's it sucks when you get you know pigeonholed in a thing that you can't break out of It's nice to have the option you 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 do you Adam Sandler. Kevin Garnett was on Jimmy Kimmel where Jimmy Kimmel said that he did a great job and he was like, I was just playing me, which I think is true and I think that acting comes from your familiarity or your ability to disappear into a role and you don't look at the camera and i think that's effective so nothing really hit me as as being terribly false except maybe kevin garnett praying to a false god which was required a suspension of disbelief over the screenplay but it wasn't bad acting no i mean kind of a funny premise but for non-actors pretty well acted for this movie
1: yeah i thought i thought kevin garnett did a great job i thought adam sandler did a great job i thought two of adam sandler's best performances were with his family with one with his wife and one with his daughter where he um slowed down for a second and i felt like really was channeling this this character who had no way of relating to real life and his wife and his daughter's being the symbols for for that life and not only did not only was his daughter's performance i think pretty spot on for a teenager who's disassociated with her dad, but um, I thought that his response to her was great. And then also, if if the wife was to represent kind of real life to him, then basically his feeling was that life was telling him that he was laughable.
0: Yeah, I I don't think he was good at being a dad or a husband, as we, we saw. I think he felt that he was better doing the other things that took up most of his time during the day. You know, he was, he was in bed with his kid watching the game and, and, and all excited about what tomorrow would bring when he got back into his hustle and what he was good at.
1: Right. Yeah. Although, and then, but it was also a really delightful performance when he bursts out of the closet and attacks his girlfriend in the apartment.
0: Yeah, he's he's cute and he's excitable in that way and and, and certainly uh, full of life, right? He's a vivacious character, um, just... <laughs> We see that, that sort of happiness and, and, and excitement get crushed uh, literally when he runs into bad guys who don't think he's funny.
1: Right. Yeah. And don't think he's adorable and really want to rip his face off. Yep. Um, so Kevin Garnett played Kevin Garnett. Was it important that this movie be set in 2012?
0: It was because Kevin Garnett hasn't played in the NBA in a while. So depending on who you go through, they had to anchor it. They didn't... You know, this movie employed a few tricks in that they used actual NBA games and built a story around it. Um, they were going. They said that if they had gone with Kobe Bryant, they would have used his infamous 60-point scoring game to show how much the you know his belief in this rock uh, encouraged his playing. So they used real games from Kevin Garnett shot in 2012 when he was part of the Celtics and now that he's retired and and a bit older now he plays the you know that that same role off the court. Right. So um they were able to get in a clever way. They were able to get Kevin Garnett who's no longer in the NBA to be in the NBA in 2012. The Weeknd who nobody had heard who was just emerging in 2012. Everyone knows who the Weeknd is. Is now some a little bit of credibility um, as an up-and-coming actor? I don't know if he had that hair for real, or if they had to put uh, the Weekend wig on him for this role, which would have been funny because you don't just go out and buy uh, the Weekend wig, right? You have to have it made.
1: It's funny though that you're saying it lends it lends credibility to it, or it lends um, some realism to it, because I was like, okay. I mean, I don't think I really thought about it twice, but the first time I saw this, I thought, oh, this is based on a true story?
0: No, it's just circumstance. It was a clever way of doing things. I saw this awesome HBO documentary recently, a six-parter, McMillions, you may have heard of it. Um, They do this awesome recreation. Where they have someone sitting in front of a camera, and we have a recreation actor sitting in a chair, and we pan across to the camera, and through the view piece of the camera, we see archival footage of that person sitting in front of us. is a genius way to do recreation. But it's little tricks like that that really add some weight and heft. Yeah. And to have Kevin Garnett in a non-faked NBA role playing a game it was pretty cool. Right. And the fact that he might have been a little bit older, I don't. I don't think that anybody tracked that.
1: No, not even Dad, although he wasn't interested, I guess. I have to agree that recreation moment in McMillions is pretty awesome, and it really does a job, great job of making you feel, making you know, reminding you how, that this was a real story. Yeah. And, that, and suggest, lending credibility to the recreations. So we talked a lot about this film, a little bit all over the place, but I, my last question about it is, um, do you think that this film was necessary?
0: No, are any films necessary, but it's their ability to pick us up and transport us into a world that we know know nothing about. So I think the Safdie brothers in this film were clever in their use of what they knew. They grew up, their father I think was a jeweler, Uh, they grew up in this world, both huge fans of basketball, and they somehow parlayed that into a really compelling story. Um, I think that it was a slice of life that we have little knowledge of, at least you and I. I mean, this is what Dad said He, in his review of Parasite. He was saying that he, he couldn't tell how much of this, you know, was accurate or whatever. And I think we said the same thing in our review, that also we have no idea what daily life is like in South Korea. I don't know what the life is of a New York City, you know, a Jewish jeweler. Um, and in that way, I was really swept up and carried along. I think people identified with this story or at least recognized it as being a compelling story a ride that doesn't let up all the way across the board uh martin scorsese saw their earlier work so he actually produced this movie i don't I know if that. you caught that um, i don't know what his involvement it was specifically he was very quiet but certainly the name martin scorsese will add some credibility to your movie and can up the budget and up the scope of it you know much higher than it would have been was it a necessary movie i don't i don't know but uh, it was certainly a fun movie to watch.
1: So it sounds like the Safdie brothers took a play out of the DuPost brothers' playbook and did what they knew and did it well and did it effectively. But not funny. But not funny, but touching, real, maybe quirky.
0: Yeah, relentless is what I would say this movie is.
1: Definitely relentless. What's your rating?
0: So for this movie, my rating—I'm I'm adding a new tick to my rating scale. Hmm. That tick is totally asterisk, unless you're a wuss. Because if you're a wuss, you're not going to have fun at this movie. It's really hard to watch. It's ratcheted up all the way for something where uh, you know the violence is relatively mild for how much stress you undergo. Uh, I've seen war movies that were less tense than this this year that are nominated for best picture. I, I totally recommend this movie. It was good, I don't know how necessary it was, but it was transportive. Is that the right word, will that work? Yeah. Um, And I was interested, uh, had no qualms about seeing it a second time to firm it up, except to reinforce my original convictions, which were that the music sucked, uh, that the acting was was really good, and that it took a story about a a situation that I knew nothing about and made it compelling, particularly, uh, you can really get into the head of a gambling addict. Yep. And feel both sorry and contemptuous at the same time for someone who has these problems. You know what I mean? He he kinda dug his own grave.
1: Definitely. So a totally rating from Wes, and I have to say that I hate to love this movie. And I give it a good. It's a good movie. I didn't expect to want to ever see it again.
0: That's your highest rating. It
1: is well. <laughs> Of, of two ratings, yes, it's my highest rating. But I felt like um, I didn't expect to like this movie. I didn't expect to want to watch it again. When I watched it again, I didn't expect to watch the whole thing. And I think it says something about the film, its ability to 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 really take you away. And I think that there's a certain, I, I want to put my thumb on this kind of filmmaking. I want to identify this kind of filmmaking because there's something about it that, I, that I'm really drawn to. Like it reminds me of Argo or you, you get on the ride, and it doesn't let up, and then two hours later, you, you don't even think about the time that you spent.
0: I think it's independent filmmaking, no holds barred go for broke, and nobody to listen to.
1: Yeah, there really aren't a lot of, they don't really make any um, concessions in this. Yep, The story is what it is, they go full tilt. So that's our review on Uncut Gems. If you would like to let us know what you think about it, give us a call, leave us a voicemail at 818-835-0473 or send us an email or movies at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices.